We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Getting my feet up. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, Tranquility uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 109 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo, the PSAC Strikes Back, and Saturn SA-2. Recapping from the previous episode, it is July 1962. The mode decision has been made by NASA, and Lunar Orbit Rendezvous was selected. Now NASA must defend its decision. The Space Vehicle Panel of the President's Science Advisory Committee, also known as PSAC, was apprehensive about Lunar Orbit Rendezvous long before NASA picked that mode for landing on the moon. After the decision was made public in July 1962, Nicholas Galvin, at the behest of Jeremy Weisner, the chairman of the PSAC, probed deeply into NASA's planning activities. Weisner knew if NASA was forced to reverse its decision, pressure would have to be applied before the development contract was awarded. Once that had been done, the course of Apollo would be virtually impossible to change. The PSAC's interest in manned spaceflight began with the Mercury program, which led to the establishment of the Space Vehicle Panel in the fall of 1961. The panel was headed by Franklin A. Long of Cornell University. The Space Vehicle Panel met in October and December of 1961 for briefings by NASA officials on the agency's plans for launch vehicles. Franklin Long reported in January 1962 the group's observations and recommendations for strengthening the United States' booster capabilities. Since Apollo planning had by then shifted from direct flight to Earth orbit rendezvous, the panel also pressed for the development of rendezvous and docking techniques. So, at the end of 1961, there was some degree of harmony between NASA and the PSAC. But that soon changed. As the space agency began to waver on its mode choice during the first half of 1962, Wisner, Golovin, and the panel forced themselves into the daily activities of spacecraft development. When NASA began to look more favorably on Lunar Rendezvous, relations between the two organizations deteriorated rapidly. Space Vehicle Panel members visited Los Angeles during February for discussions on spacecraft and launch vehicle development by North American, and then went on to Washington and several other NASA centers later 
looking closely at the mode comparison studies then in progress. The space vehicle panel grew resentful of NASA's refusal to supply them with every draft document, both government and industry, that NASA had on the subject. NASA, on the other hand, chafed at the panel's snooping into internal and contractual relationships, insisting that these activities lay outside the PSAC's advisory authority. During May and June of 1962, Golovin asked for detailed information on launch vehicles and spacecraft for all approaches under consideration. He also requested progress reports from all Apollo spacecraft contractors and on engine development programs. But NASA manager Joseph Shea did not want to release this material while the mode comparison studies were in progress, and he sent a staff member to tell Galvin that schedules were not firm and that his request was premature. Galvin was at something of a disadvantage in his pursuit of NASA information. He had stirred up controversy during the 1960-61 through 61 period of Project Mercury with his statistical reliability analysis methods, which many Mercury engineers considered merely a numbers game. Just before the Lunar Rendezvous selection was publicly endorsed, the Space Vehicle Panel was scheduled to meet with NASA officials in Washington on July 5th and 6th. In preparation for this meeting, Golovin asked Shea for the draft documents that had been used to produce the mode comparison studies. Shea advised Golovin that this material was still subject to final editing. Golovin said that all the panel wanted was a preview of the technical data and analysis of various mode alternatives, their feasibility, and advantages. On July 3rd, after examining some papers Shea had sent the day before, Weisner and Golovin thought they had found a flaw. One table showed a higher probability of disaster for lunar rendezvous than for either Earth rendezvous or direct flight. Weisner called Webb, who in turn called Shea, and suggested that he see Weisner immediately. Shea tried to persuade Weisner and Galvin that the reliability numbers based on Marshall Space Flight Center's computations contained an error. The PSAC officials were also told that figures from the report of the Large Launch Vehicle Planning Group, which Galvin happened to be the chairman, were invalid because of unduly pessimistic assumptions about the reliability of rendezvous and the difficulties of abort. Shea argued, calculations made within the Office of Manned Spaceflight showed success-failure probabilities essentially the same for all three modes. But Shea got nowhere with his assertions, and he left the meeting discouraged. But he was still hopeful that the forthcoming session with the Space Vehicle Panel would allow NASA to get the facts squared away. 
At the July 5th and 6th meeting, Shea's hopes for clearing the air were dashed when panel member Lester Lees distributed a memo foreshadowing the adverse tone of the Space Vehicle Panel's final report, which was to be issued later that month. Lester Lees from the California Institute of Technology, Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratory, was a paid consultant of North American, which did not favor Lunar Rendezvous. Shea was convinced that this was the reason for his antagonism to Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. Lees agreed that all four mission modes were technically feasible, but he asked, quote, Which of these risky adventures involves the least risk to the astronauts, provides the greatest growth potential for manned space program, and at the same time gives us the best chance of fulfilling the President's goal to land an American on the moon by 1970, end quote. Lees recommended Earth Orbit Rendezvous with the Saturn C-5 as the prime mode and direct flight using an uprated C-5 as backup. Lees disputed NASA's claim that the lighter, more maneuverable landing craft was significantly better than landing the command module on the moon. Lees also discounted NASA's demands for extensive visibility for the hover and touchdown maneuver, which Lees compared to an aircraft on Earth landing on instruments instead of visibility. The Space Vehicle Panel's reservations about Lunar Orbit Rendezvous were re-emphasized by Wisner in Webb's office on July 6th. Shea, Brainerd Holmes, and Robert Siemens listened as Webb was forced to equivocate and agree that the Lunar Rendezvous decision was only tentative. Later in the year, following additional mode studies, NASA would either reaffirm its July preference or pick one of PSAC's favorite approaches. During the last half of July, the formal positions of the two sides were staked out. On July 17th, Weisner wrote to Webb spelling out the PSAC's opinions of NASA's manned programs, particularly Lunar Rendezvous in relation to booster capabilities and American military posture in space. Weisner accused NASA of not adequately addressing such hazards as radiation, and the potential problems of weightlessness. Weisner also told Webb that he had talked to President Kennedy and told him that there was ample time to make additional studies before the contracts for the lunar landing vehicle needed to be awarded. Administrator Webb told Weisner that NASA was and had been investigating weightlessness and radiation. Webb defended Lunar Rendezvous as a contribution to American space capabilities. Webb wrote, quote, It is our considered opinion that the Lunar Orbit Rendezvous mode provides as comprehensive a base of knowledge and experience for application to other possible space programs 
either military or civilian, as either the Earth Orbit Rendezvous Mode or the C-5 Direct Mode, end quote. The PSAC panel issued its final report on July 26th, still contesting NASA's justification for lunar rendezvous and affirming once again the desirability of two-man direct flight. Reading from the final report, it said, quote, We can only note that the panel was originally widely divided in its opinions, but that after hearing and discussing the evidence presented to us, there is no dissent in the panel to the views presented herein. End quote. NASA wanted lunar orbit rendezvous, and the space vehicle panel wanted a two-man direct flight. Thus, in July of 1962, President Kennedy found the Space Agency and his Scientific Advisory Committee firmly entrenched in separate camps. The situation remained deadlocked until lunar module procurement activities accelerated. Then, Wisner and his panel tried once more to block lunar rendezvous. Nicholas Galvin knew that the Manned Spacecraft Center was getting ready to award the lander contract. So, in mid-July, he asked NASA to arrange a briefing at Downey so he could review the technical details of North Americans' studies for direct and rendezvous mission modes. Of course, most North American officials favored almost any mode except lunar orbit rendezvous because lunar orbit rendezvous kept their command module from actually landing on the moon. Golovin, hoping for a negative response from these contractor studies, insisted that NASA allow the briefing. Administrator Webb complained to Jeremy Wisner that NASA had a rather complex relationship with North American and he did not want a disturbing influence brought to bear. Wisner then offered to withdraw the request for the visit. However, Webb declined, saying he just wanted to be sure that Wisner was aware of his concerns. Golovin had his California meeting at the end of July. On the way back to Washington, he stopped off at Cleveland, to see what the Lewis Research Center was doing on the mission mode comparisons. Associate Director Bruce London told Galvin that if he wanted this kind of information, he should ask NASA headquarters for it. In August, Wisner informed Webb that the space panel believed that NASA had not selected lunar orbit rendezvous because of any overriding technical reasons and had not satisfactorily justified its decision to the PSAC. Administrator Webb admitted that there was value in having the PSAC's independent judgment, but added that NASA was an operating agency and could not submit their decisions for this independent judgment. Instead, NASA would have to find some other method of review that did not prevent moving forward with the program. Wisner conceded that it was important to keep in motion, acknowledging the priority of President Kennedy's deadline. But Wisner and Golovin still did not stop their assault. 
Galvin visited Shea on August 22nd to suggest that NASA invite a number of independent experts to decide who was right on the mode decision. Shea responded that NASA was already using outside help. This visit with Golovin reinforced Shea's feeling that NASA was in for another go-around with the PSAC committee. Shea was certain that Golovin and Wisner still believed that they could overturn the mode decision. The Webb-Wisner and Shea-Golovin discussions had only widened the gap between NASA and the PSAC. Early in September, Weisner again wrote to Webb, reiterating his concerns about lunar orbit rendezvous and the United States' inferiority to Russia in the big booster field. Weisner assured Webb that the PSAC was ready to assist NASA in gathering the best talents nationally available to study the mode question. Weisner sent a copy of this letter to the President, perhaps hoping that Kennedy might step in to settle their differences. President Kennedy did, in fact, become involved while on a two-day visit to NASA's space facilities on September 11th and 12th, 1962. After viewing the Apollo spaceport being built in Florida, Kennedy flew on to Huntsville, Alabama. There, during a tour of Marshall and a briefing on the Saturn V and the Lunar Rendezvous mission by Von Braun, Jeremy Weisner interrupted Von Braun in front of reporters, saying, quote, No, that's no good! End quote. Webb immediately defended Von Braun and Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. The adversaries engaged in a heated exchange until the President stopped them, stating that the matter was still subject to final review. But what had been a private disagreement had become public knowledge. Editorial criticism stemming from the confrontation, including the question, quote, is our technology sound, end quote, forced NASA to justify its selection of lunar orbit rendezvous to the public as well as to the PSAC. Accusations by Weisner that Lunar Rendezvous had not been thoroughly studied particularly galled Shea. He compiled material for Webb to use in refuting this charge, outlining the many studies leading to the selection. Shea estimated that more than 700 scientists and engineers at headquarters at the field centers and among contractors had spent a million man-hours working on the mode comparison. To take thoroughness to an extreme, Shea formed a team to monitor contracts awarded to Space Technology Laboratories and McDonnell to rehash the feasibility of a direct flight by two men in either a scaled-down Apollo or a modified Gemini spacecraft. But Gilroof worried that these studies might impede McDonald's work on Gemini, especially after a NASA visitor reported 
that the St. Louis contractor apparently wanted to expand the scope of the study as much as NASA would allow. Shea and his staff reviewed these studies and presented the results to the rest of the manned spaceflight organization in early October. The contractors agreed that either two-man direct flight or Earth orbit rendezvous was feasible, but both were less attractive than lunar rendezvous because the probability for mission success was lower. The first landing would be later, and the development complexity would be greater. The vote was still for three-man lunar orbit rendezvous. Among the strongest criticisms of the PSAC's preferred two-man direct flights was an analysis that indicated they would be marginally feasible with cryogenic propellants in the braking stages and with storable propellants for the lunar takeoff and return to Earth. Such flights were clearly possible only if cryogenics were used on the return leg as well, but Houston was unalterably opposed to cryogenics, which required complicated equipment and special handling for the lunar takeoff stage. Another indictment of the PSAC's choice was that the panel members persisted in claiming that lunar rendezvous had no time advantage over the other modes. NASA was equally adamant in its belief that adopting one of the other modes would mean a lag of at least 10 months. A space tanker would have to be developed, critical refueling techniques would have to be perfected, and changes in the S-4B stage would have to be made to permit long-term storage of cryogenic propellants. All of this would mean more money, perhaps an additional $3 billion. The Office of Manned Spaceflight assembled the meat of these studies into another final version of the mode comparison, which was issued on October 24, 1962. The report stated that earlier arguments for lunar rendezvous were as valid in October as they had been in July. Lunar orbit rendezvous was still the best opportunity of meeting the U.S. goal of manned lunar landing within this decade. The day NASA released the report, Webb wrote to Wisner that unless the science advisor had objections serious enough to be taken to the White House for arbitration, a contract would be awarded for development of the lunar excursion module. He told Wisner, quote, My understanding is that you and your staff will examine this and that you will let me know your views as to whether we should ask for an appointment with the President. My own view is that we should proceed with the lunar orbit plan and should announce our selection of the contractor for the lunar excursion vehicle. If you agree, I would like to get before you any facts over and above the report, perhaps in a thorough briefing, which you believe you should have in order to put in a position to advise Mr. Kenneth O'Donnell, who was one of the President's aides, that you do not wish to impose a formal objection. In that case, I believe Mr. O'Donnell 
will not feel it wise to schedule the president's time and that the president will confirm this judgment, end quote. However, Weisner and Golovin were not reconciled by NASA's latest justification. Upon reviewing the report, Weisner asked Holmes for material from the proposals of those aerospace companies responding to the request for bids to develop the lunar lander. Not too surprisingly, the bidders had all emphasized the advantages of a lunar excursion vehicle and had played down the difficulties of rendezvous as an added operational step. All the proposals cited the benefits from lunar rendezvous, chiefly mission success and crew safety, with a craft specifically designed for lunar landing and the need for only one Saturn C-5. Weisner now wanted to examine these contractor documents in full, which Webb refused to allow because of the proprietary information they contained. Next, Weisner asked that certain material be given to Golovin without identification of the contractors. It was obvious to Webb that Weisner and Golovin were trying to see what the contractors had estimated for the weight of the lunar module. But he did not understand how they were going to determine if NASA had made the correct decision on lunar orbit rendezvous. But Weisner was given those sections of the proposals that dealt with estimated weights for the lander. Most of the figures assumed a target weight of around 10,000 kilograms. But Holmes pointed out estimates of the different subsystems had varied widely. More knowledge of the lunar surface and of radiation and meteoroid fluxes would probably force weight increases in the landing gear and shields. Holmes also added that both Mercury and Gemini had demonstrated the need for keeping a margin of weight for additional equipment and redundancy. On November 2nd, Weisner and Golovin met with Webb and his staff once again. It was obvious that the two organizations still occupied opposing camps. Golovin presented a detailed reanalysis of the October 24th mode study challenging both payload margins and reliability and safety considerations. He still contended that of the two modes capable of using only storable propellants, Earth Orbit Rendezvous had a somewhat higher performance margin. Moreover, with cryogenic propellants in the landing stage, and for this he cited research done at Lewis, two-man direct flight was quite feasible. But Golovin found more serious faults in NASA's stance on reliability and crew safety. As he wrote Shea later that day, quote, It has been surprising to read in the report that the direct ascent case is less likely to be successful and to be more dangerous to the crew than the obviously more complicated lunar orbit rendezvous mode, end quote. Members of Shea's staff disputed Golovin's estimates of performance margins and reliability factors that made Earth orbit rendezvous and direct flight appear safer than lunar rendezvous. But this exchange, NASA's final technical response to the outside criticism of the agency's handling of the mode question, 
was actually a post-mortem. After Webb's letter of October 24th, Wisner decided not to take his objections to Kennedy, since the president was occupied with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Subsequently, Wisner took the position that had the situation been different, his actions might not have been the same. Webb then advised the White House that Apollo was committed to lunar rendezvous. Wisner had never argued that this mode was impossible. He had simply preferred other methods. Wisner realized the depth of Webb's commitment to his technical organization. If Wisner had carried the question to the president, Webb would have insisted that NASA alone must make crucial program decisions. The president almost certainly would have backed the man he appointed to run NASA. So presumably, Wisner decided to let the issue die. At the end of the first week in November 1962, NASA announced its selection of a manufacturer for the lunar module. For the second part of this episode, I wanted to cover the flight of Saturn SA-2. I have some audio of Kurt DeBoos, the first director of the Kennedy Space Center. You may recall he came to the U.S. with Werner von Braun after World War II. In the audio, DeBoos is describing Launch Complex 34, which will be used for the flight of SA-2. Permit me to use here a model of Launch Complex 34. The main elements of the Saturn C-1 complex are the launch pad, which is approximately 120 meters in diameter. In the center is a launch table. 360 meters away is a blockhouse, which is a launch control center or the nerve center of the operation. This particular control center is igloo-shaped and contains two floors. The lower floor contains a telemeter station. The upper floor is a control center itself with all panels and instruments vital to the checkout and launch. Other elements of the 40-acre complex are the facilities for storage and automatic fuel transfer of liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, fuel, and the transfer lines, as well as a high-pressure storage area necessary for the fueling of the space vehicle before launch. The most noticeable element is that of the service tower, which, in servicing position, straddles the space vehicle. The service tower is used to assemble, service, and shelter the space vehicle during preparation of the rocket for launch. After its job is completed, it is moved under its own power approximately 182 meters back to a parking position. This is considered to be the minimum distance in order to protect the tower from an explosion caused by a space vehicle falling back 
onto the pad. The design and construction of this tower was a engineering task and challenge of the first order. It is self-propelled, weighs almost 3,000 tons, is built to withstand hurricane winds of 125 knots, and this point is 31 stories above the ground. The stages of the Saturn SA-2 flight vehicle departed Huntsville on February 16, 1962 for Cape Canaveral. The vehicle arrived at the Cape on February 27th. Here's a NASA audio on the delivery of SA-2. Ten days and 2,000 miles of water travel brings the Saturn barge to a dock at Cape Canaveral. The docking procedure is the final task of the barge and tug crews. Comparison of booster size can now be made. It is 82 feet long and 21 and one-half feet in diameter. At dusk, the Saturn booster is making its last earthbound trip. Destination, Complex 34, some two miles away. The booster will remain on the transporter overnight and be erected the following day. Other stages have remained on the barge overnight. Work begins on their removal. Sheathed in a blue plastic protective covering is the second stage. The water ballast tank and nose cone are also covered for protection against dirt and dust. A slow but steady two-mile trip begins for the transporter crew. The caravan passes through the gate at Complex 34, preceded by guards in the station wagon. The Saturn service structure dominates the skyline. Booster stage erection has begun. The stage is lifted by an overhead crane located at the top of the service structure. We can see the eight H1 engines clearly. The inner four engines are fixed in position, while the outer four engines are movable to provide directional control during the powered flight. Lowering the booster onto the pedestal is the first assembly operation. The booster rests on eight steel arms, four to support the vehicle, and four to both support and restrain the vehicle until proper engine ignition has been achieved. Technicians remove the plastic sheath. The second stage is then hoisted by the crane prior to being mated to the booster. The whole process is like a construction worker laying blocks. Another step in this block laying procedure is to hoist the nose cone section to the top of the service structure. The nose cone cradle transporter is moved away from the immediate launch area. An explanation and briefing on Saturn erection procedures takes place at the base of the service structure. While high in the service structure, work progresses in lowering the third stage onto the second. Final assembly is complete. Now the long and complicated checkout begins to determine Saturn's readiness to perform its intended function. This requires varied forms of communication between the many teams working toward the common goal of a successful flight. The assembly of the various stages has created the final configuration known as Saturn C-1, which stands majestically while surrounded by the steel network of the service structure. By March 1st, the SA-2 was erected on the launch pad of Launch Complex 34. The only significant change made to SA-2 from the previous SA-1 flight 
was the addition of extra baffles in the propellant tanks to prevent fuel sloshing. While no serious delays were encountered, there were several minor problems reported. A leak was detected between the liquid oxygen dome and injector for the number 4 H1 rocket engine. While attempts were made to fix the problem, it was eventually decided to launch without replacing the engine. Minor problems were found in the guidance subsystem and service structure operations. Damaged strain gauges were found in the liquid oxygen stud and truss member and a manhole cover on the dummy Centaur third stage had to be replaced. Problems also arose with two of the fueling computers, but each was repaired. Three hydraulic systems were listed as potential problems as well. Despite the issues encountered during flight preparation, none required the target launch date of April 25th to be pushed back. The objectives of the SA-2 were much the same as those of the SA-1, in that it was primarily a test of the Saturn I rocket and the new H-1 engines. Specifically, its goals were to prove propulsion, performance, and mission adequacy, vehicle structure design, and aerodynamic characteristics, guidance and control systems, and launch facility and ground support equipment. A second objective of both this mission and SA-3 was Project High Water, the intentional release of ballast water from the second and third stages which allowed scientists to investigate the nature of Earth's ionosphere, as well as noctilucent clouds and the behavior of ice in space. SA-2's dummy upper stages contain approximately 86,000 kilograms of water, or 86,685 liters, used to simulate the mass of future payloads. Stage 2 contained 44,000 kilograms of water, and Stage 3 contained 42,000 kilograms. Now I have some audio of the fueling and launch of SA-2. Preparation for fueling begins. Nitrogen supplies the necessary gas for purging fuel lines, liquid oxygen lines, and the engine and instrument compartments. Liquid oxygen is manufactured on the Cape and is stored in the spherical ground storage tank, seen here venting. In order to expedite work at the various levels, Five movable work platforms are positioned around the vehicle. These are sectionalized and positioned in the horizontal plane. Repositioning can be accomplished to place the platforms at various vertical levels. Activities continue in other areas of the complex. Inside the launch control center, the test conductor and his part of the team continue the countdown. The complexity of this operation can best be understood by noting the myriad of instruments and equipment required in support of the Saturn program. The analog system presently in use will be phased out, and analog to digital conversions will be used at future launch sites. Specialized launch operations require specialized skills and equipment. Dr. Debus and his launch control center personnel 
keep in visual contact with outside activities through a closed-circuit television system. From the launch control center, heart of this giant complex, the scene shifts to the giant vehicle being prepared for launch. What might appear to be the columns of an ancient civilization is in reality a modern system of supports for the liquid oxygen lines installed above ground. From the storage tank to the vehicle, expansion loops in the lines allow for rapid expansion and contraction of liquids at extremely low temperatures. From the indicated time, ignition of the engines followed by liftoff of the vehicle will soon occur. to release the vehicle for flight. Tracking cameras located about two miles from the launch area provide coverage from ignition through flight, culminating in the high water experiment. 1,300,000 pounds of thrust generated by Saturn's eight engines accelerate the vehicle to the upper atmosphere. Maximum speed attained by the vehicle was 3,700 miles per hour. Inboard engine cutoff came at 110 seconds following launch. Outboard engine cutoff was achieved at 116 seconds after liftoff. The flight was a complete success, with all objectives attained, including determination of the in-flight performance of the eight booster engines, the controlling movements of the four gimbaled engines, engine cutoff and propellant utilization. Also achieved were verification of the airframe structural integrity, a further proving of the launch facilities and ground support equipment. A cloud cover partially obscures the vehicle, but the trailing tail of flame is easily seen entering the rarefied atmosphere where the vapor trail appears. The vehicle was deliberately destroyed at an altitude of 65 miles to release the 95 tons of water, which was carried as ballast in the dummy upper stages. An ice cloud with a diameter of 8 to 10 miles was formed within three seconds. This is the highest ice cloud ever known to have existed. Saturn SA-2 launched at 1400 hours UTC on April 25, 1962 from Complex 34. The only hold in the countdown sequence was for 30 minutes due to a boat which entered the flight safety zone 96 kilometers downrange. There were no holds for technical problems with the vehicle. SA-2 carried 281,000 kilograms of propellant, which was about 83% of its maximum capacity. The H-1 engines shut down at an altitude of 56 kilometers after firing for 1 minute 55 seconds and reaching a maximum velocity of 6,040 kilometers per hour. The vehicle continued to coast to an altitude of 105.3 kilometers, at which point, 2 minutes 40 seconds after launch, officials sent a terminate command to the rocket, setting off several explosive charges which caused the rocket to destruct. NASA declared all objectives successful. Additionally, the fuel sloshing issue from SA-1 was minimized. 
Concerning Project High Water, when the terminate command was sent to the rocket, dynamite charges split the second stage longitudinally, instantly releasing its water load. Primacord charges created several one-foot holes in the third stage, releasing its water over a period of several seconds. Cameras on the ground immediately recorded the water cloud and personnel at a ground station began to observe it about four to five seconds after release. Those personnel reported that the cloud dispersed from vision within an average of five seconds. While more sensitive instruments tracked the cloud to a maximum altitude of 161 kilometers, the cloud produced lightning-like effects, which Dr. Von Braun described as probably the first synthetic thunderstorm ever generated in space. Project Highwater on this flight was also declared a success. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.